0: Good afternoon, thank you very much for having me here at uh, the seminar series of The Changing Character of War. Since uh, Kate's been so nice to introduce uh, me and my talk, I'm not gonna go bother reading the title again. Go straight to the next slide. And I always like starting with a very simple plain map of the world, a standard political atlas as. Uh, we pretty much are presented with beginning in kindergarten and first grade. The reason I start with this is because this is, in my view, the, one of the tools that inhibits us the most from understanding the way the world really works. It depicts this notion of globalized sovereign territoriality, uh, which uh, was a principle derived from the Peace of Westphalia's Uh, most of the people engaged in research in this room will know. Um, Roughly speaking, exported via imperialism and colonialism and consolidated in the post-World War II framework um, and uh, the subsequent independence movements. It represents a formal legal rational state system in the modern image. What I always like um, I always like uh, making the analogy or uh, referring back to Weber and his idea of the Iron Cage, of a des Gehäuse, which uh, creates this sort of notion of constrained territoriality and resistance to to changes and adapting to effective changes in uh, political authority, uh, particularly in local territories. Uh, It's, um, as John Ruggie would say, homonymous. So it's... uh, John Rugg- I always like quoting John Ruggie here in the beginning. It's a variant of structuring territorial space uh, in a familiar world of territorially disjoint, mutually exclusive, functionally similar sovereign states, and the chief characteristic is a territorial rule and consolidation of all parcelized and personalized authority into one public realm. Unfortunately, or I don't want to make a value judgment here, it is not effectively consolidated. Throughout the world, we see spaces that do not conform to this form of political authority. And uh, this is where uh, the international order as represented by the political map that I showed in the previous slide is contested in local arenas. And here, I'm not talking about weak, failed, or fragile states. I'm not talking about ungoverned spaces. And I'm not necessarily talking about post-conflict or civil war settings or sub-state or transnational phenomena, because all of those conceptualizations, in one way or another, then use the standard conceptual political authority represented in in this map uh, as a starting point, once again. And this is exactly what with my contribution of the concept of illicit order, I'm trying to Uh, engage with uh, the phenomena directly through theories of social order rather than indirectly via theories of the state. And also, these, uh, in terms of policy, these spaces continuously have more and more of an uh, impact in an era of globalization. And um, we see this uh, through the U.S. National Security Strategy, for example, the EU Security Strategy, and most recently the EU uh, document on the EU as a global actor, uh, which all address uh, in some form or another spaces that are not uh, in effective control of states and where alternative actors have established some form of order or authority. And what I'm really trying to do here is understand what's going on within these territories and how we got here. And I'm going to do so by looking, particularly in the case of the favelas of Rio de Janeiro. Now, I usually leave this part of my talk to the end, but because I wanted to adapt my talk a little bit to uh, my fellows uh, from the uh, Change of Character of War Center, I'm actually going to put it in the beginning. And this is essentially the state's um, response to the Constitution of illicit Order in the favelas of Rio, where uh, a And this was really interesting, there's a 2009 memo written by uh, the U.S. Consul General in Rio at the time, uh, that was addressed to the State Department, the National Security Council, and CIA, among others, and it had the subject tags like boundary and sovereignty claims, external political relations, and narcotics. I'm just going to read an extract from this memo. So uh, he writes, The favela pacification program marks the first time that state, municipal, or federal authorities are attempting a clear-and-hold approach, the success of which is predicated upon pushing criminal elements out of the community, establishing a permanent police and government presence, then providing basic services and civic privileges to favela residents. This approach closely resembles U.S. counterinsurgency doctrine in Afghanistan and Iraq, and highlights the extent to which favelas have been outside state authority. Like counterinsurgency, the population is the true center of gravity, and the program's success will ultimately depend not only on effective and sustained coordination between the police and state municipal governments, but on favela residents' perceptions of the legitimacy of the state. In addition to the obvious security factors involved with the pacification program, there are also significant economic interests at stake, with some analysts estimating Rio de Janeiro's economy would grow by 38 billion rise, or 21 billion US dollars, should favelas be reincorporated into mainstream society and markets. And then he finishes with, Post will work closely with relevant state authorities to facilitate exchanges, seminars, and institutional partnerships towards this end. And so what we're really talking about here is this sense that uh, the international order, uh, represented in that uh, initial map that I showed, really trying to reimpose its form of governance uh, that it normatively espouses as uh, superior, and uh, its economic structures over these territories that have fallen into the hands of criminal gangs. Uh, The program essentially had four uh, different, and I'm uh, speaking in the past tense here because the program uh, has pretty much failed and uh, drug gangs have uh, become resurgent in this area. So it's yet another case of showing how difficult states, um, uh, how how difficult of a job it is for states to actually reassert uh, state authority within these uh, territorial domains. And uh, the program had four phases. The first one, trying to recover the territory. The second was a stabilization phase, uh, which uh, sought to secure territorial gains uh, by removing trafficker fortifications and confiscating weapons. The third was an implementation phase where they established community-based policing structures. And finally, a post-implementation phase uh, where they created complementary social programs uh, that addressed that legitimacy Um, aspect that was such a big part of that uh, memo that I just read an extract from. This here is a map showing, uh, depicting what was going on during that first phase, where they're essentially trying to recover the territory from uh, these territorial gangs. And as you'll see, uh, not only were, uh, this looks pretty much like a military invasion. And this shouldn't surprise you because that's essentially what it is. We're operating in a context of uh, de facto urban warfare. And uh, you, you have uh, special units from the police as well as, uh, as well as naval, um, uh, well um, essentially Brazilian Marines and other um, uh, members of the armed forces that are uh, usually uh, an external function and a military function meant to protect the sovereign state from external enemies operating internally. And these are some examples of then the fortifications uh, that were used by uh, drug trafficking gangs in order to protect their territories and um, and essentially rule uh, through violence over their territories uh, while they're still in, in their hands. And uh, finally because I thought this would be very interesting for some of you in the room. Uh, and you probably know what weapons and, uh, and gear uh, they, they apprehended here better than me. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, a very large uh, range of uh, rifles, assault rifles, and uh, as you know, uh, the, there's a famous case in uh, 2009, just after uh, Rio was awarded the Olympics, where they actually shot down a, a police helicopter uh, with a grenade launcher. So that's just to give you sort of an idea of the type of uh, and level of violence that we're working with here. And uh, this uh, map uh, pretty much shows within uh, the, uh, the municipality of Rio de Janeiro, uh, the red uh, are favela territories controlled by gangs, uh, the uh, blue uh, was, were, the, uh, were the favelas uh, that were then uh, taken over by state government uh, through this program. And the uh, purple were areas where they were just beginning uh, these operational phases. Uh, now, uh, after the Olympics, unfortunately, the program is now essentially defunct uh, due to lack of funding and uh, the resurgence of criminal gangs in a lot of these uh, favelas. But this is just to show you the impact that these illicit orders can have. This, uh, I'm essentially uh, beginning with the end here. What I'm really trying to understand is how these illicit orders that exist within these territories that the state is so keen on disbanding actually arose in the first place. And um, to do so, first offering, in fact, a concept that can adequately grasp the phenomena and then explaining the process uh, through a tr- process tracing approach. And uh, the reason that those two aspects are in bold is because that's what my f- talk today is gonna focus on. There's a third dimension to my work which uh, tries to understand these local illicit as part of a global society. I'm not gonna go into that in detail today, uh, but just keep it in the back of your mind. Um, so conceptualizing. Essentially what I'm trying to do is get away from this negative conceptualization of uh, territorial control uh, by, or this idea of weak states and uh, uh, failed states and moving towards a more conceptual, uh, more positive conceptualization in terms of understanding what is actually going on in these territories and who, uh, who has authority and who's able to establish order. So uh, rather than uh, focusing on state weakness, I'm focusing on gang strength. Uh, And this is an attempt to essentially jettison the state-centric lens that most uh, analytical approaches take to this type of uh, problem. Uh, Often it's presented in a context of civil war, of uh, post-conflict settings or sub-state governance that often uh, reimpose preconceived categories and Uh, what I'm also uh, trying to do is get away from this idea of a transnational lens which often also uh, presuppose the existence of uh, the uh, sovereign territorial state system uh, that I began with uh, in the first slide. And uh, what I'm really trying to uh, transmit as well is this idea that these actors don't arise below the state, but apart from the state. And the fact that uh, we're essentially seeing uh, what is a contestation between state authority and gang authority play out in these urban contexts as a form of urban warfare, uh, really shows that to a certain extent, they're operating on the same territorial plane in order to assert these uh, different forms of authority and order. What do I mean by order? Order is, uh, according to my uh, definition, uh, the establishment of norms, rules, and institutions that offer governance, uh, in this case, uh, by an actor that's non-state, but I'm also trying to get away from the idea of a non-state actor because um, uh, what? again, going back to this positive conceptualization, and uh, so what I'm looking at is the process of structuration uh, within these territories where, uh, where I'll get back to this in a moment, but where essentially the uh, authority and institutions are co- co-constituted in a recursive encyclical process. A key element of the, cre- of the structuration of an illicit order then is authority. And here we're not talking about the type of legal rational authority that we are familiar with uh, in, in the Viberian context of, um, of bureaucracy, but um, we're mostly in a framework of charismatic authority where uh, one uh, individual or a group of, uh, a group of uh, individuals is able to uh, create a process of routinization uh, by getting followers to essentially uh, reenact uh, or act on their uh, behalf. so it's a form of, it's a principal agent problem and uh, an, a process by which uh, first internally within the gang structure, you start seeing uh, the transmission of certain uh, norms and rules, and then finally that and then also, uh, that a gang being able to assert those over the territory as a whole including the broader population and we're also uh, what I'm also looking at is a form of plenary authority so they have uh, these gangs essentially have authority over their entire territory in all, in all uh, different domains rather than just an issue specific authority uh, because a lot of times when we're looking at uh, non-state governance uh, particularly in the global governance literature uh, these uh, the alternative types of, of non-state authority are treated in terms of uh, functional lines rather than territorial uh, domains and ultimately the question that we have to ask is this a form of public or private authority well it's certainly non-state but uh, because these uh, illicit orders uh, enact their rule over a, a territory with uh, a broader population; it, it's very much akin to uh, a public authority in uh, in that sense. Finally, uh, one thing that I also want to clarify, and uh, this is also often a problem in the literature where people talk past each other, is this informal? Is it illegal or is it illicit? I chose I specifically chose the term illicit uh, because. Uh, as uh, the Oxford uh, English Dictionary suggests. Um, Illicit is a third way of uh, looking at the problem because this tends to compass things that are forbidden or disapproved of by custom or society. So they're not necessarily illicit from a legal purview because uh, these gangs or these illicit authorities are able to establish their own form of authority that determine the rules. Uh, and if we're looking at them apart from the state rather than below the state, then we can't conceptualize them as being subjected to the laws, and therefore it's difficult to say that they're illegal borders. Um, On the other hand, uh, informality is also a function of institutions created by the state that determine what is formal and what is informal. And uh, so I ultimately went with illicit precisely because... Uh, I'm also looking at this from the perspective of a global society. And there you can c- see a certain, um, you, you have a certain, uh, going back to uh, the idea of the international order, there is a certain international order that's uh, still conceived of as uh, normatively superior, and it would be then considered licit in, re- in respect to... Uh, that uh, notion of global society. Territories of contested sovereignty. How did they emerge? So, uh, what, one of my core claims, and I'll go to this in, uh, the, in the specific context of the fellows of Rio de Janeiro, is that processes of globalization and uh, lead to, uh, th- so we're talking about economic processes, political processes, and uh, social processes, essentially uh, penetrate local arenas and create territorial domains where state institutions claim nominal jurisdiction but no longer uh, or do not have effective uh, authority over them. Within these territories, we can then outline three domains where uh, state authority and non-state authority compete. And this is the core of the theoretical framework, which looks at uh, three uh, three domains of social legitimacy, socioeconomic security, and organized violence that uh, any type of actor, whether state or non-state, public or private, has to assert legitimacy uh, has to assert primacy within in order to establish authority. Within once authority has been established within these territories, you then have this uh, recursive structuration process between authority and institutions. That ultimately uh, are able to, uh, whereby uh, order is ultimately established. So, how did this happen in the context of Rio? Looking at the forces of modernity, and globalization, we start with the cl- colonialism and the slave trade. Uh, here uh, we have uh, the, as you know, the trans. Uh, Portugal uh, colonizes uh, the, the territory. Um, and the transatlantic slave trade is responsible for bringing a lot of um, slaves from Africa into Brazil primarily for agricultural production. Then in 1888, with the abolishment of slavery, a lot of these slaves escape the plantations and create what are called quilombos in uh, the hinterlands of Brazil, uh, that, uh, where they essentially create autarkic communities. Uh, Then in uh, 1889 the uh, the Brazil establishes a republic uh, essentially through a military-led coup, and uh, this republic is founded on principles of Comte and positivism and modernity which uh, espouse these theological notions of ordem e progresso, which means order and progress. Um, uh, Rio is also considered a Paris of the south, and uh, increasingly you have uh, this transition from agriculture as the primary um, as, the, as the primary uh, source of economic productivity towards industrial development and you also see a lot of internal migration and displacement as a result of this process because uh, the the plantations where, uh, where you employed most of uh, where most of the slaves were employed beforehand were also being being um, uh, being changed due to technological pro- uh, uh, progress and which meant that you had high amounts of urbanization and uh, which transformed the traditional social fabric so then uh, essentially in Brazil uh, you see this uh, process whereby uh, the rural population becomes increasingly smaller and the urban the urban population uh, becomes uh, exp- uh, not exponentially, but essentially linear uh, has uh, sees linear growth, which uh, so the percentage of the rural uh, to urban population uh, becomes uh, very small, and uh, with this large population growth uh, in in uh, Rio and other urban centers of Brazil, you start to see the emergence of uh, favelas because of the failure to integrate. Uh, these migration uh, processes within the broader society. And this is particularly due to resistance from the upper middle classes, uh, as well as a long-standing uh, racial tension, discrimination, and, and neglect by state institutions. So ultimately this results in spaces with a noted absence of state-imposed hierarchy, authority, and social order that then become contested by non-state actors. During this time, uh, particularly in uh, the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, when the uh, dictatorship, uh, when the Brazilian dictatorship uh, came to power, the income distribution uh, within Brazil also changed dramatically. So you saw a large rise of top earners earning a larger share of the pie, and the uh, lower uh, income brackets uh, also being uh, reduced. And this ultimately led to uh, the large-scale expansion of territories that were now considered favela territories uh, in the urban centers and particularly Rio de Janeiro. So that's to give you an idea of the global context through which uh, these uh, favelas emerged in the pr- first place, and then now let's talk about this, uh, the three domains that I mentioned earlier, uh, which uh, show how the uh, particular actors, so the drug gangs, were able to then take advantage of this situation in order to impose alternative forms of authority and order. This begins with uh, the organization of violence. and. But what's really interesting, and this comes back to this notion of urban warfare, between 2004 and 2007 Rio's uh, homicide rate was 49 uh, per 100,000 inhabitants. This uh, is nearly uh, double the mean of combat-related deaths uh, in the three deadliest uh, conflict zones, well, as of 2011, which were Afghanistan, Sudan, and Iraq. And uh, this violence also predominantly derived from inter-gang and gang police violence. The uh, and the gangs uh, originally uh, were a combination of uh, the, the gangs originally uh, arose from uh, the uh, Canedo Mendes prison. So during the military dictatorship, a lot of uh, normal uh, street criminals, as well as... Marxist rebels were imprisoned together and it was uh, during this time that a lot of them were able to escape and they found the favela territories as um, as hiding places where they could then uh, uh, establish niches and um, begin imposing, um, imposing a rule essentially through violence Uh, The first gang was the Commando Vermelho, uh, which then also resulted uh, in, uh, due due to, sorry, so the first gang was the Commando Vermelho, and they increasingly had infighting, and then through this process, uh, two other gangs emerged, which were called the Tercero Commando, Puro, uh, that emerged (laughs) in the North Zone, and the Amigos dos Amigos, uh, which formed in a prison later, and challenged the CV in the south zone. And through the process of the organization of violence, these uh, gangs were able to create internal hierarchies where gang members often uh, joined as young children between the age of eight, 8 and 13, and then also went through essentially what is a, a equivalent of a normal chain of command, beginning with a fusilero, then a traficante, uh, Soldado, Guadacosta, and uh, Chef Maconia, Cocaina, and finally the leader. And uh, this one uh, uh, corresponds to a normal infantrymen. Uh, and what, they're often young children who are then placed at the uh, outer rims of the favela, and whenever they see uh, police officers or any type of external threat, then uh, they're uh, supposed to launch uh, this fuse alert uh, the the rest of the chain of command uh, that there that there's a threat coming. Uh, Then you have the traffickers and the soldiers who also who who are also responsible for different functions. The trafficker being essentially an economic uh, agent who uh, is responsible for selling drugs and the soldier being a um, someone who's responsible for uh, the, uh, the military function, the guadacosta is a bodyguard to the leader usually, and you have different, uh, the chef de maconha and cocaína, for example, uh, they're responsible for different aspects of uh, the drug trade. Uh, maconia being marijuana, uh, cocaine being as cocaine, which is obvious, and all the other drugs, they each have a different boss. And the problem of succession within this chain of command is overcome through uh, what Weber would call the process of routinization. So basically, uh, by creating this uh, structure, uh, then if one of the leader dies, which was actually a common, uh, um, uh, which is a common phenomenon, there's already a structure in place that would then determine who's the next in line. So another uh, very important aspect of uh, the organization of violence, as a key aspect in the creation of authority, is uh, transnational small arms procurement. And uh, interestingly, all the weapons, or most of the weapons, come from OECD states, especially the United States, and uh, they're mostly military-grade semi-automatic assault rifles. And uh, some smaller calibers are manufactured in Brazil, but most weapons are imported either illegally uh, or through legal channels, but then resold within Brazil, which also makes them illegal. So through this organization of violence, uh, the drug gangs are able to create an endogenous monopoly, uh, which which is violence essentially used against residents. Uh, and the enforcement of Lei do Moro. Lei do Moro is the law of the hill, and the severity of penalties depend on what type of offense is committed. And uh, some offenses, uh, for example, if uh, you murder someone within a favela, uh, which uh, may sound a little paradoxical, but if you murder someone the, within a favela, you're put into what's called the microonda, which is the microwave, and it's essentially a gas barrel uh, that. Uh, someone's put into, uh, gas uh, put uh, on the person and a match lit, and uh, then you have what's called a microwave. So a very brutal tactic that's also symbolically um, akin to what uh, may have uh, been in the medieval, what uh, may in medieval times have been a public hanging. So it's essentially to send a message. And then you also have uh, protection against exogenous forces, which is police and military, uh, as well as the militia, which is a more recent phenomenon of uh, corrupt state forces, uh, creating uh, also these gang-like structures that have started taking over territory and other gangs. Then there's the socioeconomic uh, security dimension, which is also a fundamental aspect of the creation of authority. Here uh, we, again, go back to this context of poverty and inequality that I mentioned as a, as a result of, of the uh, broader uh, socioeconomic context uh, that began uh, particularly under the dictatorship, uh, where you have a Gini coefficient that's uh, very high, uh, denoting uh, very high levels of uh, inequality. Uh, the poverty headcount ratio between uh, 308 and uh, 21.4%, also uh, being uh, relatively high, with over 40 million still living at or below the national poverty line. Uh, Very restricted access to social services, land scarcity, and property rights uh, being not very clearly defined. And uh, also a a context of market-dominant elites that limit access to markets uh, due to high pre-existing capacity, capacity differentials, particularly in terms of education, and if you have family ties, it's much easier to uh, obviously get jobs and uh, uh, progress uh, within the economy than uh, if you do not. And this creates a very uh, th- this really creates a problem for people in the favelas because uh, of their restricted access to uh, employment opportunities and markets. They look for other uh, socioeconomic coping mechanisms, which are mainly the uh, illicit markets in arms and drugs uh, that they are able to exploit due to their control of territory. That creates an institutional parameter within which transaction costs can be uh, significantly uh, lowered uh, for these trades, and that again goes back to this notion that uh, the uh, the authorities within those realms are creating an Uh, an alternative institutional framework that's apart from the state and not necessarily uh, below the state. There's also transnational links, uh, particularly to Colombia, Bolivia, Venezuela and Peru where uh, most of the production is done. So what's interesting about the favelas is that uh, there's no real internal production of drugs like in Colombia, for example. Uh, It's essentially uh, further down uh, these activities are further down the supply chain uh, through the creation of these economic uh, niches. And through the extension uh, of socioeconomic security by the gang leaders towards the other members of the gang and then also in the next uh, in the next step, uh, the wider community, through uh, co-optation and pra- patronage networks, they're then able to reinforce the authority that they've already gained through the monopolization of violence uh, in, in this context of socioeconomic security that would create what North and, uh, Wallace, and North Wallace and Weingast uh, termed the ba- political economic double balance uh, in the creation of order. This just to illustrate uh, the uh, the drug trafficking trends, uh, particularly in this case the cocaine route where you see cocaine being produced in Colombia, Ecuador, Peru and Bolivia uh, being exported down to um, the south of Brazil which uh, includes both Rio de Janeiro and uh, Sao Paulo and then uh, being uh, at further uh, transported to, uh, to Africa and uh, through uh, particularly West Africa into Europe. And so, uh, what these favelas are uh, offering is not just an outlet for local markets and drugs uh, in southern Brazil, but also as transshipment nodes for further afield in uh, Africa and Europe. Uh, this is also some pictures from my fieldwork to illustrate the informal economy within the favelas. Uh, a lot of goods actually coming from uh, coming externally uh, from either China or, um, uh, or other Asian um, production hubs into uh, the in, into these communities than uh, being sold locally, and the protection for these markets is offered not by the state, but is offered by uh, the drug gangs. So, uh, and then uh, this is uh, the main thoroughfare in Cocinha, which is the largest favela in all of uh, Brazil, and uh, sometimes South America, and uh, this is in a very important street because they used to uh, pr- they used to organize these uh, funk parties in uh, uh, on this street, where uh, which was a major outlet for drugs, uh, particularly to the urban population, uh, uh, young people from the bairros, which are the uh, communities, the the rich people's communities, on the uh, which are essentially are situated side by side to the f- with the favela, and. Uh, so people would come in, buy their drugs there, and uh, move out again uh, through uh, the organization of these uh, these funk parties. So, thirdly, getting to uh, the social legitimacy aspect of the cre- of the constitution of authority. Um, what's really important is to understand also the state's approach and mentality, which is. Um, very mu- very well represented in this hymn of the pl- military police of special forces. So, uh, just to uh, read a few lines, it goes, for example, to invade the favela and uh, drop bodies to the ground. Uh, do you know who I am? I'm the damn dog of war. I'm trained to kill, even if it cost me my life. The mission will be accomplished wherever it may be, dispersing violence, death, and terror. So. What you see is this uh, state bureaucratic apparatus that has a very militarized approach to uh, to the problem of uh, gangs in in the favelas, but it also shows um, how, to to a certain extent, uh, or reinforces this notion of a real war existing between competing factions uh, that. Uh, over the control of territory. And what's interesting is uh, the very reciprocal uh, notions being entertained on the other side. So this is an extract from a funk song uh, by local um, rappers who um, are, were also members of drug gangs. And uh, they say, for example, Dende Hill is impossible to invade. Us and the Allemans, the Allemans being uh, German, uh, or uh, Allemand meaning German, but uh, being used as a cop because uh, they're considered uh, white and taller and uh, having the uh, features of uh, European men, uh, are going to have some fun because in Dende Hill, in Dende, I will tell you how things are, here it isn't easy, not even for the drug repression unit. Uh, to ascend uh, the hill, even Bukbi, which are the special forces, trembles. It isn't easy for the civil army nor the military police. So again, you see all these very, uh, this very martial rhetoric and uh, the creation of uh, these two uh, competing sides um, over, uh, and, and what's also very uh, featured in in these discourses uh, are the idea of controlling territory and invading uh, territory. Um, Then you also have discourses on authority. and uh, Here, for example, we have a different uh, funk artist uh, from the favela saying we're okay that it's us commanding. The first uh, you call is us uh, who are in command, uh, a reference being to the Comando Vermelho. Uh, brother by brother were multiplied to be respected is just to begin respecting uh, the gang and its order. There will always be a goddess strip on the next corner. And that's a really interesting reference uh, to, again, this idea of being uh, in, uh, in conflict uh, with a much stronger opponent, much stronger adversary. Uh, and uh, this, uh, this idea of uh, consolidated... Uh, order uh, existing and uh, def- over a particular territory and then defending it from outsiders and others. And this gets me to a very important point which is the perception of self and other in the making of identity constructs that reinforce authority uh, of the gangs. And here you have an, uh, an, an interesting depiction by Fabio Nelio who's, who's a local favela artist who kinda of shows this siege mentality of the gangs within the favela relative to uh, police forces from the outside, as well as uh, military forces, and how uh, they're essentially trying to defend themselves and protect their community from these external threats. Uh, they also use uh, markings to uh, demarcate territorial control. So ADA is Amigo Dos Amigos, and uh, you essentially see how uh, this uh, these uh, discourses of control and territory are um, are visually featured throughout uh, these uh, throughout the streets, and it gives people a constant reminder of who's in charge. It's a little bit like hanging up your flag uh, uh, or uh, displaying your flag uh, when you're taking over another country and. And uh, hoisting your colors. Uh, it has a similar effect. And here you have a, uh, a particularly interesting one, which is uh, essentially um, uh, someone uh, wrote Ney, which is uh, the name of a local drug boss uh, who was very famous in Hosinia, and uh, writing over it. Uh, UPP is the man, which UPP being the uh, Favela Pacification Program that I showed you in the beginning. So these, uh, you, you see these discourses being very publicly, um, uh, being very publicly uh, displayed on, on the walls of the favelas. So to to conclude the uh, section on how identity. Uh, uh, reinforces the legitimacy of these gangs and therefore also uh, the um, uh, reinforces the authority of the gangs. Uh, you have three competing identity constructs which are territorial, ethno-racial and socio-economic that lead to this very fragmented notion of collective identity that again um, splits uh, the territory from the, uh, the broader notion of national collective identity. Uh, that the, uh, order, uh, would be, um, that the international order would be, that the international order espouses the idea of the nation state. So uh, through this um, establishment of authority, you have essentially two uh, spiraling processes, uh, which where you have the individual and the group within the gang creating these gang structures and authority then being able to, through the, uh, th- by asserting their dominance within these three domains that I just outlined, then being able within the territory to, um, to create the institutional framework uh, that established gov- that establish governance, uh, establishes governance and ultimately social order. Uh, and, th- and in practice, that looks a little bit like this. This is an example of rules posted by the Commando Vermelho. That says uh, attention, um, respect, residence. Uh, this is a communication from the Commando familia that from today onwards, uh, you're not, uh, you will be punished severely if you kill innocent people. And finally, uh, this creates a distinction between effective uh, boundary making, which I call soci- sociological boundary making, where ultimately, uh, through the establishment of authority. Uh, you uh, you end up in a process where despite having a legal um, a, a legal framework for uh, for the creation of boundaries, uh, soci- sociologically these boundaries uh, do not conform to the notion of uh, institutional, uh, or sorry, the effective boundaries don't correspond to uh, the Uh, legal imposition of uh, state borders, and therefore you get a very um, different uh, picture when you look at the effective authority over a particular realm, as opposed to the nominal assertion of authority. And uh, yeah, if you have any more questions, I can go into more detail about all these elements.